Our scripture reading today is from Acts 8, 1 through 8, and 26 through 40. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women, putting them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasury in Kadunk, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. The queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard a man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. For who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or somebody else? Then Philip began the very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they began, and as they went along on the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through and kept preaching the gospel to all of the cities until he came to Caesarea. Amen. Amen. Uh, As you can see, we are looking at the power of Jesus in the book of Acts, and Really, if there were one passage, one story in the book that showed us the heart of God for you and for the world, it would be this one we just read and heard today. And say, how can I say that? Well, because in this passage, we see what the message of the gospel itself shows us, something we'll call the paradox of belonging. What do I mean by that? We're going to see in this passage how outsiders are turned to insiders How insiders are turned to outsiders, and finally, ultimately, how anyone can get in. You guys ready? Here we go. Let's look at number one and see how outsiders are turned to insiders. And uh, we'll pick off where we left off last week with the death of the first Christian martyr, a man by the name of Stephen. And when Stephen was killed, there was a, a great persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And most of those folks there, it says, were scattered across the surrounding areas. And that scattering of the church is traced through one man, through one person named Philip, the deacon. 
not Philip the Apostle. And Philip's actually an amazing evangelist as well. And he leaves Jerusalem. Philip's scattered to a place called Samaria. And while he's in Samaria, it just begins to go really well there. There are miracles. There are conversions. More signs. And the gospel is taking root. It's flourishing outside of where it began. But in the middle of this revival, something curious happened to Philip. Here's what it says. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So here's what he's being told. He's being told that something that no pastor uh, with a thriving, successful church ever wants to hear, basically, leave your ministry and go out to the desert. (laughs) And so Philip's told to leave his ministry, leave all the people, do something specific, go to a place where there aren't any people, except there was one person. But Philip didn't know that yet. But when Philip sees a man on the road in a chariot, now the scripture tells us, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So let's ask, who is this individual? Philip is being directed to, well, it says this man is an Ethiopian eunuch, and he's not just any Ethiopian. He is the treasurer, like the CFO of the whole government, his whole nation. He was, in other words, a powerful, rich, black, African, but sexually altered man who, it says, had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now let's just pause and point out the obvious case study in contrast here between these two men on this road, in this place. On one hand, you've got Philip, right? He's a poor Middle Eastern Jew being commanded, being told to go and minister to a powerful black African from another culture literally a thousand miles away. And this isn't, if you'll notice, this isn't Philip's idea. This is God's idea from front to back because at first we see it's an angel who's got to tell him to go. And then he's on the way. The Holy Spirit commands him to go to that African. The point is, Philip would have never been here talking to this person in this place if it weren't God's heart and will and plan in the first place. So let's ask, well, what does this show us? Just what have we learned so far? What is this showing us? Well, this whole scene here up to this moment is showing us how the gospel turns outsiders into insiders. Those on the outside and those on the inside. In other words, this is showing us how radically inclusive the gospel is and how different Christianity is from every other faith system. Here's what I mean. If you ever take a a world religions class or an anthropology class of some sort at a modern secular university, you'll be told that all religion is, all faith is, all we're doing here today is, is just a projection of our culture. Like every culture needs some way to keep its people together, bind them together. And so cultures just invent religion and sort of throw it up on the wall and make it, makes it in its own image. And so you see the Greeks, you know, had their gods and their image. The Romans had their gods. Asian culture developed Shinto, Buddhism, Hindus, uh, Christians, Muslims do the same. So What do we say to this, right? What do we say to this? What do we say to the charge that all faith systems, including ours, is just a projection of culture? Well, I'll say this. I'll say that while it may be true of every other religion, every other culture all over the world, that is not true of Christianity. And here's why. 
Here's my statement. Christianity is not the projection of one culture because Christianity has no one culture. This is important to grasp, so I'll say it again for you. Christianity is not the projection of one culture because Christianity has no one culture. You all ought to be glad for that and say amen. Yeah, and at this point I'll introduce to you or reintroduce to you, if you were here about a month ago, someone you should know about. That's a, a brilliant African theologian, history professor at Yale University named Lam Insana. And he's written a great little book that every global-minded Christian should pick up. I hear they're selling these on Amazon these days. The book's called What Religion, excuse me, Whose Religion is Christianity with the subtitle The Gospel Beyond the West. And in it, Dr. Sana convincingly makes the case that Christianity has no one culture. And here's what he points out. He points out an obvious contrast between Christianity, every other faith system, and he points out that in every other faith system, no matter how old it is, every other faith system has a cultural center that it's never been able to move beyond or past. And he says, take, for example, Islam. 96% of all Muslims live near where their faith began. Middle East, Northern Africa, South Asia. Same goes for Buddhism. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. But when you get to Christianity, what we're a part of, you have something completely different, something that has no cultural center that spans the globe. And even when it kind of seemed for a while to have a center, that center just migrated on someplace else. So think about, for example, Korea today, South Korea. In 100 years time, it's become almost 50% Christian. In a hundred years. The same thing is happening right now and will happen in China. Uh, across the world today, 25% of all Christians are in Central South America and the Caribbean, our favorite place, because that's where our sister Adele's from. Uh, 22%, think about that, one in five Christians in the world lives in Africa. 15% of Christians are in Asia, 20% or so in Europe, and only 12% of the church around the world is in North America. America. So Sana asked the question, I'll ask you, whose religion is Christianity? Mm -hmm. If secular theory is right, and all religions are a projection of culture, including Christianity, then what's going on here? Well, what's going on is secular theory is right about other religions, but not Christianity. Because Christianity is not the projection of one culture trying to find God and keep its people happy. It's the story of the one true God broken into the world, come to find all cultures and all peoples and all places at all times. And this story right here of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch is article of evidence number one. Christianity is the most inclusive faith system in the world because what it does, as the story proves here, is to turn outsiders into insiders, to pull in people from all kind of ethnic and sexual backgrounds right into the very heart and community of God based on repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Sana goes on to the same and he points out, he says, hey, look, you know, secular culture isn't really that inclusive, even though it pats itself on the back every day for being so diverse. He says, well, you know what, for example, what happens when an African person comes into a modern uh, secular education environment? He says, consider an African person, the heart of whose worldview includes angels, demons, spirits, a supernatural world. And that African person comes to, say, Oxford, Harvard, 
UT Austin, right? What are they told? They're told there's no such thing, actually, as the supernatural, that there's a scientific explanation for everything. And yeah, they can wear their nice African clothes and bring in their nice African food to the potluck, you know. But if they want to be enlightened, accepted, and taken seriously as a modern person, they must empty their soul of their Africanness. So he asked, points out rightly, well, who's more inclusive, secular culture or Christianity? He said, oh, consider what Christianity says to the African person. He says to the African person that says, yes, there is a world. It affirms a belief in a supernatural world full of powers and dark forces and angels and light and darkness. But Christianity goes on to say, but there is one greater than every other power. It's Christ the victor, Christus victor, Christ the champion, the Lord, Jesus the resurrected one who's conquered what no one else could, death itself. And he could come into your life, into your heart, and conquer every dark power in your life. Christianity, he says, pulls in every culture, but renews every culture at the point it needs renewing. So whose religion is Christianity? Well, the answer is it's no one's. Because it's everyone's. And history has proven what we've seen in this chapter. It is actually the will of God that we as Christian people, God's people, we move beyond ourselves, beyond our own customs, our own cultures, our own comfort, that we drop the ways of life, the ways in life, that we look down our noses at people who we think are different or all the ways we think we're culturally superior. And we just do what the Bible commands, which is to love our brothers and sisters, made in the image of God, as equals. Look at Philip here. Philip's got every reason any culture could ever give him to exclude this man, to keep him on the outside. The Ethiopian's a pagan, an idol worshiper. He's ethnically different. He's a eunuch. And we'll come back to that later. See, Philip as a Jew, and hang on to your seats here, Philip as a Jew would have grown up praying this prayer. This prayer was the prayer every Jewish male prayed every morning. Is what it was. Not in the Bible, it came into their culture. They prayed, God... I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was their prayer every day. Yeah, No bueno, as we say in Texas, right? You make me a Gentile, slave, or woman. Uh, Philip wasn't even allowed to go into this man's house, but here he is climbing up into this man's chariot. Why? Oh, because it's the will of God to turn outsider, us outsiders into his insiders. Now, before we move on, I mean, just acknowledge something that, you know, you, if you're here, you probably, maybe, hopefully, like that part, a little bit of it. You know, you probably felt a little warm and fuzzy when you heard how inclusive Christianity is because we live in Austin, Texas, and we like to keep it weird. And, you know, we could maybe just put, you know, keep it inclusive on our T-shirts, right? Make somebody make that T-shirt. We could sell it, like, for a youth fundraiser for camp or something. I don't know. You feel good about wearing it. But you say, well, what about all the exclusive stuff in there? What about that? And then, well, that's there too. Hear me. Because Christianity is at once the most inclusive and exclusive faith system the world has ever seen. It's both at the same time all at once. And you've got to grasp that today because it's just what it is. I want to show you. If you'll hang with me, I want to show you the beauty of its exclusivity, and why the gospel doesn't just turn outsiders into insiders. Oh, but how and why? It also turns, number two, insiders into outsiders. Now watch. Watch carefully what happens here in the passage. Let me show you what I mean. Philip runs up to the chariot. 
here's this man reading the Bible, Isaiah, the, the prophet to be specific, and he asks him a question. Philip asks him, do you understand the words that are, no, I'm kidding. Uh, understand what you are reading, Philip asked. And look at what the Ethiopian replies. He replies, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. Now, how many of you felt that way about the Bible before, right? Oh man, I just need someone to explain it to me. Especially that stuff back in Leviticus, right? But here's the heart of his question. The Ethiopian is asking, what does this mean? That's the question. And when the Ethiopian asks Philip that question, let me tell you, that's the same question every one of us, every postmodern person asks of the Bible, of every faith claim, of every truth claim. We ask, what does this mean? What does truth mean? And as one commentator I came across pointed out, you'll notice that Philip here doesn't say, well, it's whatever you want it to mean, <laughs> right? Who am I to tell you? You're going to have to make up your meaning for yourself because all that meta-narrative is an attempt to control you and keep you down and, you know, keep certain people in power. We're all just lost in a sea of meaninglessness and who am I and what am I doing here anyway, right? No, Philip doesn't do that. To the question, what does this mean? What's the meaning of the Bible? Philip answers with an absolute exclusive truth claim. He says the Bible is about, and hang on because though you probably know what I'm about to say next, if you've been here like more than once, don't let the familiarity of what I'm about to say drown out the magnificence of the claim. He says, the, Philip says, the Bible is all about Jesus, Jesus. And that means two things for us today. Number one, it means that the Bible is not about you and the rules you have to follow to be saved and right with God. See, when you come to any religious text, when you come to any culture's claims about faith or religion, it always has a formula for how you obey so you can earn your way in based on your behavior. See, Buddhism has what? The Eightfold Noble Path. Islam has the five pillars. Judaism has the Ten Commandments. Do these things, they say, and you're in. Oh, but when Philip says the Bible is about Jesus, here's who that excludes. Everybody. Everybody's excluded. And especially all the good people who do their good things, who obey all the rules to get in. And in case you never thought about it that way before, let me just push you on how offensive this is. A man by the name of Michael Runyon is an atheist and social critic philosopher, and he's, uh, he's got an article where he lists his not top 10, 20, or 30, but his top 40 reasons why Christianity is unbelievable. Why you shouldn't believe it. He's put a little bit of thought into it, apparently. And and one of the most emotionally laden uh, reasons he gives for why Christianity is unbelievable is reason number four, uh, which is called, he calls Hitler, Ted Bundy, and Bill Gates. Into the gospel of grace to the Christian, uh, the Christian claim, he says, listen, Christian people, you're saying that even though Hitler murdered all those Jews, all those people, you say that if he would have repented and placed his faith in the one true, or in Jesus and God, you're saying that God would have received him and forgiven him and taken him to heaven. Is that what you're saying? And then he goes on to say, well, what about Ted Bundy? You know, the, the modern day serial killer. He confessed to murdering more than 30 women. And in prison, he came to Christ. And you're saying because he became a Christian in prison and apologized to God, God will forgive him and let him in. 
He says, well, what about Bill Gates? He said, by contrast, look at Bill Gates. He says, Bill Gates is an atheist who has lived a virtuous life and has donated more than 27 billion, I put that part in, 27 billion dollars to global health development and education. And he says, Bill Gates has done all of this and you're saying if he doesn't put his faith in Jesus, he will be excluded from God's family. He'll be eternally condemned and he said, not somebody like Bundy or Hitler. Oh, he says, I can't stand that. And the gospel is therefore, he says, irrational and senseless. Why? Oh, he's offended that the gospel says that insiders, somebody like Bill Gates, who were at the top, at the inside through their own work ethic or smarts or ingenuity or morality or generosity, intelligence, cannot earn or buy their way in to the kingdom of God. See, Runyon here, Runyon is just articulating the first commandment of secular culture, which is this. Thou shalt be good on thine own terms. And if thou art good on thy own terms at the measure, at the rate at which thou wantest to be good, thou shalt by thy own standards be just fine. But here's what that means. That means that secular culture is every bit as legalistic, as unforgiving a set of commandments, and is ultimately as red in tooth and claw as nature is, because what it means is if you're good and you do good things, you deserve good things. But let me ask you, what about the rest of us moral failures, like on stage today, right? What about those of us who are broken, who can't get our stuff together, right? What about the weak and the flawed? See, Runyon's right. Christianity doesn't make sense if ultimate reality is about getting what we deserve. When Philip says, when Philip says, the Bible's all about Jesus, the Son of God. He's also showing you this. Secondly, he's showing you that Jesus isn't just come as another religious founder and saying, oh, I've got a set of rules. I found this nice way. I'm a projection of just one more culture, helping you, hoping that you do better and clean up your life. No, Jesus is saying the opposite. He's saying you can't clean up your life. I'm not a projection of culture. I'm the one true God. Come into your culture. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to God except through me. Jesus is saying, it's so exclusive. Uh, No one deserves God on their own. If you're here and you've you've seen the new Wonder Woman movie, yeah, and now you're back, all right. At Wonder Woman movie, there's this great part in it where Steve Trevor, the male protagonist hero guy, asks Wonder Woman a profound question. And in the scene, she's struggling with the evil of humanity, how bad, how corrupt people are. And she asks, why should I help them as bad as they are? She says, humanity doesn't deserve someone as good as I am. And you know what? Wonder Woman's right. Assuming Wonder Woman was like really a real person, Wonder Woman asked real questions and apparently helped us win World War I. You know, just got the backstory. She says, humanity doesn't deserve a God's goodness. Humanity doesn't deserve the mercy of a God. And Steve Trevor says, you're right. He says, you're right. I'm not going to argue, but he asked her a profound question. He asked her, but what if it's not about getting what you deserve? What if it's about what you believe more than what you deserve? What if it's all about believing 
in love. And you see, I mean, that's like an arrow in the movie that points us straight here to the answer the gospel gives us. See, that, that film does a better job of acknowledging what's in the human heart than an atheist like Runyon. It shows you what the Bible's always said, that those who think they're insiders are really the outsiders. No one deserves to be saved. The gospel is exclusive when it says no one can earn it. But it's radically inclusive because it says anyone can receive it. And let's see how and why that can happen. Number three, how anyone can get in. You know, the real, pa- under, excuse me, the real key to understanding any Bible passage is to ask it the right question. When you're reading the Bible this week, ask it the right question and watch what happens. And the right question is usually the most obvious question in a passage. And the obvious question to ask is here that is this, why is there an Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah in a chariot on his way out of Jerusalem? What's a guy like that doing there, doing that? See, that's what Luke's wanting you to ask. It's a strange sight. Why is all this happening? Well, who was this Ethiopian again? It says he was a eunuch in the royal court. To be in his position meant he would have had to have been groomed for the position, would have had to have demonstrated talent for the position, but he would have had access to the royal family and to ensure his loyalty and his purity, and the purity of the royal family line. To get in his position, he would have had to make a terrible decision. He would have had to have made the choice to be castrated. He had made this enormous sacrifice to be in the royal family, included in his position of power. But he's found out here. He's on the road because he's found out even the very best sacrifice, all he can do, cannot bring his heart the sense of belonging he knows he needs. He's made the ultimate sacrifice. He can to be included. But seeing it wasn't enough that's who he was. Oh, but why is he on the way back home from Jerusalem? Well, perhaps he had gone because he had heard there was a, a one true God, this faith claim somewhere, a, a more powerful God than all the spirits or, or idols of his land and nation. Perhaps he heard there was a, a God powerful enough to do miracles to fix his broken heart or body or life. But what we do know is this, when he got to Jerusalem, he would have gone to the temple to worship. And when he got to the temple, he would have been turned away, shut out, after a thousand-mile journey to find God. Why? Oh, because the Mosaic Law, Old Testament, forbid a eunuch from entering. Why is this? Well, for two reasons. One, the Jews had this, was to acknowledge God's ownership over the human body and direction of gender. But second, and here's the larger point, there were a host of regulations that prevented all kind of different people from getting in. If you've touched a dead body, right? If you ate certain foods, if you had some kind of skin disease, you were considered like this eunuch, unclean unable to get in. This was a way of acknowledging, which is just like mind-blowing foreign to us today, that God was holy, that he's not just like your, the buddy you met in the chat room, right? Like your barista at Starbucks or the, your BFF who won't ever tell you the truth because I don't want to make you mad, right? No. This is saying you can only come to God on his terms, not on yours. That's what the law meant. But you can, can you imagine what the law meant then for this man? Because if you had a skin disease, oh, you could be healed. If you touched a dead body, you could be cleanse in their law. If you ate unclean food, you could be forgiven. But what if, what if you were a eunuch, someone who had chosen to permanently alter themselves sexually? What about him? Well, someone like him could never have gotten in. And he would have been turned away from the temple, gotten in his chariot, gone home, crushed. 
You think, well, if he knew this could happen, why did he even go in the first place? I mean, if it's there in the law, why did he even try? Oh, I think he tried because he had read something in the scroll. Of this passage tells you he had the scroll, the book of Isaiah. Something sparked his heart. Something that Isaiah had seen and written hundreds of years, centuries before this moment here. And Isaiah saw something from the heart of God and he wrote it down. And this is what Isaiah said that one day that God would do. He said, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, oh, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the who, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them. I will give where in my house, within my walls, a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name, which won't be cut off. Oh, what had the eunuch read? The eunuch had read that there was a God who could love him no matter what. And this God had said would give him a name better than even having children or descendants. Why? Well, today, you know this, we primarily get our meaning from our work, from our accomplishments or credentials, right? But they got their meaning primarily from their family through passing on a line, passing on a name. And so God is saying here, oh, what I can give you can free you from whatever cultural pressure you're experiencing. The kind of name I give you is a better name than what anybody else can call you. Oh, they call you doctor, professor, lawyer, businessman, athlete. I call you my child. I've come to give you freedom from all the ways your culture drives you to alter your life life, mutilate yourself. I can set you free. And what's the passage? Oh, what is the passage? The eunuch is then reading when Philip comes up to him. He's reading Isaiah chapter 53. He was led like a sheep at the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And he's reading this verse, this verse when Philip walks up in his humiliation, verse 33, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his what? Descendants, for his life was taken from the earth. Isaiah 53 is describing someone like the eunuch... (sighs) humiliated by his culture, excluded, left without descendants or children, just like this man. And so the eunuch asks Philip, he begins to plead with him, tell me, please, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? It says, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the what? What does it say? The good news, literally the gospel about Jesus. And what is the good news about Jesus? Oh, it's that Jesus had become an outsider, that Jesus had left his family and left his culture in heaven for a people on earth. But when he came to his own people, when he tried to get in, they wouldn't let him. He was humiliated. He was cut off, left without descendants. His life was taken from the earth. It says, this lamb was put in our place. Oh, what does this mean? Why did Jesus do this for us? For two reasons. The eunuch had to see, and you and I must see today. First, Jesus did this because he, this is telling us, was offered for us. Offered for us. The Isaiah passage shows that Jesus, like a lamb, it says, was taken. What is this? So this was the Jewish way, the, the, the sacrificial lamb was the Jewish way of describing how a human heart could satisfy the religious impulse to get in, to do something, to get right with God. See, every heart has that impulse, and the eunuch was no exception. His impulse had driven him to get that position and give up his own future. 
C.S. Lewis, the great British thinker and writer, knew all about that desire, the desire to get in what he called the inner ring, the inner circle of a people somewhere, something bigger than himself. And Lewis was bullied horrendously by kids in grade school, if you read his autobiography, and then later he found himself on the inside of people at the top of the academic world. And he found out, like this Ethiopian, that what he was really doing was chasing something that would ruin him in the end. And Lewis wrote a little essay, a speech actually, a commencement address he called The Inner Ring. And here's what he said to this group of graduates. He said, my main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire to be part of the inner ring is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. It's one of the factors which go to make up the world as we know it, the whole pell-mell of struggle, competition, confusion, graft, disappointment, and advertisement. And unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life from the first day on which you enter your profession until the day when you're too old to care. Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. He concludes this way. The quest of the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. What's he describing? He's describing the same thing that had driven this Ethiopian that drives us the desire to be included, the desire to be a part of something no matter what, the desire to be called up into the presence of someone or something great and told you're in. You're no longer an outsider. You're part of the inner ring. And and Lewis said, if you don't deal with that, you don't break that thing, it's going to break you. Oh, look at what he had done to the Ethiopian. The, the quest for the inner ring had driven him to mutilate himself, alter himself sexually, and driven him to make a failed thousand-mile journey to the other side of the world. What did he need to see? Oh, the Ethiopian needed to see Isaiah 53, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was offered for him. He was the sacrifice for him the eunuch could never make to get in to the ultimate circle, the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, the ultimate inner ring of glory and power and love. Oh, Ethiopia needed to see Jesus was offered for him. But he also needed to see, secondly, Jesus was offered not just for him, but as him. He was, Jesus was offered as us in our place. See, substitutionary sacrifice is what true love is all about. You know, what moves your heart in any story, any movie, is when some character, when the hero or heroine dies, when they offer themselves to rescue the life, to save the soul of someone in peril. It's what happens in the Lord of the Rings with Gandalf, with Harry Potter, with the main character, I won't tell you. Uh, It's why Obi-Wan or Han Solo died in Star Wars. They die to try to save a soul, to try to redeem a life, to bring their family back. Why? Because that's what it takes to bring someone home. And that's what it took to save you and me and Philip and this eunuch and anyone else. Oh, did the eunuch get it? Did he get in? Look what it says. It says, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what? What prevents me from being baptized? See, what's water baptism? A number of things, but it's first and foremost the sign of inclusion, of being brought into the family of God, being brought into the church of Jesus. Oh, but Philip said, oh, if you believe with all your heart, you may, but is it the water that brings you in? No, ultimately, it's the confession of Jesus as the Son of God. Look what the eunuch said. 
He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let me tell you, you and I today, we can have what that Ethiopian eunuch had. An encounter with the grace of God, Jesus taken for us, offered as us in our place to do what no accomplishment, what no sacrifice or penance could ever do to bring you in to the inner ring of the heart of eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit.